If you've been with us over the past, I don't know, month or so, hopefully you know that we've been preaching a series through uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, now, we took a break from that last week because it was Father's Day, and Rex preached a special Father's Day sermon. Um, but today we're going to pick up back in Romans 8, so we're going to pick up right where we left off. Last time we left off in verse 8, we did Rex preached verses 5 through 8, so today will be verses 9 through 13. Uh, so I'll give you some time to turn. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you don't know where Romans is, that is perfectly fine. Uh, I would take all the time you want to check your index at the beginning, ask a neighbor to help you. Um, but again, just take your time getting there, um, and I'll give you some time to get there as well. Uh, just a couple of quick things before we get started. Uh, you, some of you may have heard, but last week we had a vote concerning the building and moving forward with the steps with that. Uh, we also had a vote concerning uh, new, new elders and incoming elders. Uh, and so I'm supposed to pass this on to you from Rex that all of that passed. So the elders have been affirmed. And the building vote passed with a 100% vote. Which I'm told is absolutely unheard of in church life. So, uh, so rejoice in that, and we'll take that as affirmation to move forward. Um, and we'll have a building. All right, everything, money is there. Everything's ready to go. The vote is behind it, and so we'll hopefully be starting that soon. And within I don't know a year, maybe if you talk to Dave or Jerry or other people on the building committee, uh, it's coming quickly. So thank you for your support. Thank you for voting. Um, and we just ask you to continue to pray for uh, our church and for that building moving forward, uh, that the Lord would continue to build us, not only just our building, but continue to build us as his people. Uh, so thank you, and let's continue to pray uh, for that moving forward. Um, so hopefully, if you're in Romans 8 by now, again, we're in Romans 8, 9 through 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, those five verses, and that's going to be uh, where our content comes from today. Uh, you might have a translation that sounds a little bit different than mine. That's okay. It's all going to mean the same thing. And it's just that the original language is translated a little bit differently. Uh, but don't worry. It's just going to be it's the same thing. Okay? Uh, so Romans 8, 9 through 13 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Right, so if you remember two weeks ago when Rex preached on verses 5 through 8, he talks about how when it comes down to it, there are really only two kinds of people. And that we always differentiate between different levels of Christians and different kinds of people in all these different ways. But what he said is that in verses 5 through 8, there are really only two groups of people. All right, and those are people who are either in the spirit or people who are in the flesh. All right, and so verses 5 through 8, as Rex talked about, are primarily about people who are in the flesh. And so that has this to say about people who are in the flesh. It says they live according to their flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're hostile to God. 
They do not and cannot submit to God's law, and because of that, they cannot please God. All right, so Paul gives us one group of people in those, that passage, and he says, these are the characteristics of those people. Right? And then the other group of people, as Rex pointed out, are the people who live according to the Spirit or who are in the Spirit. All right, and in these five verses, Paul primarily talks about the people who are in the Spirit and what life in the Spirit looks like. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk through these five verses, just one by one, go straight down, 9 through 13. And I want to talk about what it is to be in the Spirit. And so as I do this, that means I'm going to be addressing two groups of people in the crowd today. Right? There are those of you who are in the Spirit, to whom this, this text applies. And then there are those of you who are still in the flesh to whom verses 5 through 8 mainly apply. I don't claim to know who those people are. I'm not trying to be presumptuous, but I think it'd be foolish for me to assume that even in a church where people are claimed to be believers in Jesus and worshipers of God, that there are no people in here who are not still in the flesh. Right? One of my fears as I look at the church today is that there are people who call themselves Christians but who are not in the Spirit which, as we're going to see in a little bit, is an oxymoron. Meaning they don't go together, they contradict. And so I'm talking to those two groups of people today, people in the spirit and the people in the flesh. And so as we walk through this text, I would encourage you to follow along, right? see it with your own eyes on that page, and then also think of this kind of overarching question over everything uh, that we talk about. Right, so be asking yourself, am I in the Spirit? Am I in the Spirit or am I in the flesh? Right, and so before we begin doing this, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just pray to this end right now. All right, so would you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us this morning. May your Spirit be present within us helping all who are here. And Father, for those of us who are in the Spirit, I pray that you would give us assurance today that we are in the Spirit, that there's no condemnation for us because we're in Christ. And I pray that your Spirit would conform us to the image of your Son today. So help us in that way, Father. And Father, I pray for those people in here who are in the flesh today, that your Spirit would be helping them and that you would be drawing them to yourself. God, that you would convict them, that you would open their eyes to see the glory of the gospel. God, they would see that they're in the flesh, but that they would walk out of here today in the spirit. So, Father, help us this morning. Uh, this is only something you can do. Uh, and so we just, as your people, ask that you would do this right now. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so starting right away in verse 9. All right, I'll just read through it again. All right, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. We're going to stop right there. All right, first observation about people in the Spirit is that those of you who are in the Spirit have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now, we, we've all heard this before. You've, if you've been to church at all, you've probably heard that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. 
again, my fear is, though, is that we get so accustomed to hearing this that we just kind of let it slide off of our backs and we don't actually think about what it means or uh, about what kind of truth that is in all its glory and excellence. All right, so what does it mean that the Holy Spirit indwells us? All right, it, it means this, the, the Spirit of God. It's not, the Holy Spirit is not less than God. He's not a manifestation of God. It's God himself. It's the third person of the Trinity. He's dwelt in perfect glory with the Father and Son for all of eternity. So the, that Holy Spirit, being God, dwells inside of us. And again, we're used to hearing this, but we don't realize what a glorious truth this is. You might remember in John 16, 7, Jesus himself, as he's kind of talking to his disciples for the final time, tells them that it's actually for their advantage for him to go away. Because when he goes away, it means the Spirit comes. Now, I'll be honest that I read that verse, and I can't possibly imagine how Jesus going away from them could be better. I can't possibly imagine what would be better than having Jesus in the flesh right in front of me right there at that moment. And I imagine the disciples were thinking the same thing. Right? And it's a, it's a good question. It's a valid question. I think a lot of us ask, how, how can that be, Jesus? Why is that better? So I hope that can help you understand why it's better for the Spirit to be in us now than it would be for Jesus to be here on the earth present with us. Right? And there are two primary reasons. The first one is this. When Jesus was here on the earth in the flesh, he was only present in one place and at one time. Right? Obviously now he's in eternity, yeah, in eternal God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all-powerful. But when he was in the flesh, he was limited to one place at one time. So think of his ministry. His ministry was limited to the people he was talking to today. So right now, if Jesus were to be here preaching with us, you, were, you would be the only people benefiting from that. The people in the church across town, the people in the other state, people across the world would have no benefit from that. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is present in every believer everywhere in all the earth, carrying out his ministry. Right, so Christ, only present in one place at one time when he, he was here on this earth, he says, I'm going to go away. And it's to your advantage because when I'm gone now, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to indwell every believer everywhere, and he'll be carrying out my ministry all over the world, everywhere where believers are present. And that's the first reason it's better for the Holy Spirit to be with us. The second reason is this, is because the Holy Spirit is the one who actually applies the work of salvation to us. What that means is this. Um, salvation from start to finish is the work of God. Right? We have nothing to do with it. Do you know this? Right? We have nothing to do with our own salvation. And so here's kind of how Scripture lays out and describes the salvation working for us. Right? So remember, within the Trinity, there are three persons, each being fully God but distinct persons. God the Father, his role in salvation is that he wills salvation. He plans it. Right? He's the one who wills it forward, puts the plan in action. That's his role. God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes the salvation. Right? Who took on human flesh, lived a perfect life on this earth, died a substitutionary death, and then rose again? Right? That was Jesus. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in coming to the earth, actually accomplishes our salvation. 
Now, here's the problem. God the Father has willed our salvation. God the Son has accomplished it. But now we need somebody to apply it to us. Because we can't apply it to ourselves. Salvation, being holy of God, must come from him. And this is the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually applies salvation to us. So this is why it's good news for Christ to go away and for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus knew. He said, hey, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to accomplish the salvation of all my people. But until the Holy Spirit applies it to them, they won't benefit from it. Right? And so, until we have the Holy Spirit in us, we will not have salvation applied to us. Does that make sense? We cannot be saved until the Holy Spirit makes us to be saved. Right? And so the good news of the Holy Spirit indwelling us now is that he's carrying out his ministry within us and that he is actually applying salvation to us who are in the Spirit. Right? For those of us who are in the flesh, the, the exact opposite is true. Right? You have no salvation being applied to you. The work of Christ has not been attributed to you at this point. Only the Spirit can do that. Right? But for those of us who are in the Spirit, what a glorious truth this is. Right? Salvation is being applied to us by the Holy Spirit because he indwells us. All right, the next truth is this. At the end of verse 9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the second observation about people in the Spirit is that people in the Spirit belong to Christ. So if you are a regenerate believer in Christ in here today, you belong to him. You're his forever and for all eternity. Ephesians 1.13 would say it this way. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right, so what's that saying is that when you heard the gospel and you believed it, the Holy Spirit came and sealed you for all eternity. Right, so that you now belong to him. Uh, the word sealed actually can be translated as a down payment. So when you became a believer in Christ, it's as if God sent his spirit, put him in you as a down payment that he's mine now and for all eternity. Right, it's almost as if God sent his spirit, looked upon you, and said, mine, right, right to you. And so you belong to Christ if you are in the spirit, right? And as Tom read Romans 8 today, at the end of it, which we'll get there, I don't know when we'll get there, but we'll get there eventually as we preach through Romans 8. But he said, nothing can separate us from Christ, Right, nothing on earth, nothing in heaven, no power or ruler or authority or dominion, nothing. We, because we belong to Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. Right, we are his now and for eternity. And again, those in the flesh do not have this benefit. If you're in the flesh, you are still at odds with your creator. You're still hostile towards him and cannot please him. Next observation, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
Right? This is, can be a confusing verse. A lot of this stuff can be confusing, but that's all right. That's why we're trying to explain it to you so we can see what it means for the Spirit to be in us and for us to be in the Spirit. All right, so what this means is this, verse 10, that those of you who are in the Spirit now have a life-giving power that people in the flesh do not have. Now, this doesn't literally mean that your body is dead right now. If you can hear me, that should prove that fact. So if it doesn't mean your body's actually dead right now, what does it mean? It means this, is that we all still have bodies that are prone to physical death, to temptation, and to sin. Right? This applies to people in the flesh and in the spirit. Right? Everybody has a body of death that's prone to physical death, to temptation, and to sin. The difference is this is that people in the spirit now have a life-giving power within them that people in the flesh do not have. Right? That's where he says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. Right? For those of us in the spirit, we have life. And this life means two things. All right, first of all, it's a renewed and invigorated spiritual life now here on this earth. Right, we have been made spiritually alive in the here and now so that we can now relate to God in a meaningful way. We can now worship him and love him that pe- in a way that people in the flesh cannot do. Right, because we have been made alive. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sin, but God, by his grace, made us alive. Right? And so for us who were in the spirit, we were dead in our sin and trespasses in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit who now indwells us. And so we have life here and now on this earth. It also means this, life in that verse. It's also talking about resurrection life. Right? We have the hope of eternal life with God after this life here on this earth. Even though our body is dead because of sin and we're still prone to physical death, we have the hope of resurrection life that people in the flesh do not have and will not have as long as they're in the flesh. And so even though our bodies are dead because of sin, the spirit inside of us is life because of righteousness. Notice how it says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So in other words, the Spirit has brought us righteousness, and in so doing has brought us life. The righteousness that the Spirit has brought has brought us life. All right, and we know that this righteousness is not our own. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Right? And one of the songs we sang at the beginning up here, we, the first verse asked a question is, who, are, who am I that you would be mindful of me, that you would look upon me, or something to that effect? And the answer from Scripture is nothing, that we have nothing that would appeal to God. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We have nothing in ourselves to make us lovely before him while we are in the flesh. Right? That's Romans 8, 5. That's two weeks ago where Rex talked about where Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In our flesh, in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. We have nothing to please God with. But the Spirit 
brings us life because of righteousness. And what he brings us is righteousness outside of ourselves. That's not our righteousness, not somebody else's righteousness here on this earth, but the righteousness of Christ. And we know that this is exactly what we're given when we hear the gospel and believe it, that the Spirit gives us the righteousness of Christ. All right, look back in verse 4 in Romans 8, just a few verses back. Actually, we'll start in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice again, verse verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So those of us who have the Spirit in us, who are in the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit, have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Because Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And the Holy Spirit has applied the righteousness of Christ to us now so that we have the righteousness of Christ. Uh, this, that's why we're saved. That's at the very heart of the gospel. And this is, that is why we have life. Precisely because we have the righteousness of Christ. That's why we have the promise of resurrection life. We're going to see this in the next verse. But because we have the righteousness of Christ, the Spirit will now empower us to share in Christ's resurrection life. Not only that, the Holy Spirit will also empower us to now live righteously just as Christ did. So we now have life here and now. And we now have life for all eternity with the Lord because of righteousness. Because of the righteousness of Christ that the Spirit has now applied to us today. And so again, that applies to us in here who are in the Spirit. But for those of you in the flesh, your body is still dead because of sin. You have no life-giving power within you. You have no spiritual life in the here and now. And you have no hope of resurrection life. Because you have no righteousness in and of yourself. And you need the Spirit to apply to you the righteousness of Christ. Which only comes through faith in Christ. We can do nothing to save ourselves. But believe in Christ. Trust in His perfect work and His righteousness to save us. And when we do that, the Spirit will attribute His righteousness to us. And then we will have life. Here and now. And also resurrection life. Verse 11, he goes on to say this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, Paul clearly doesn't mean we'll avoid physical death. I have not known anybody on this earth to avoid physical death to this point. I don't know if I ever will. But so what he's talking about here is physical resurrection that awaits us at Christ's return. Right, so just a little bit ago in the last verse was talking about resurrection life that we're promised because we're in the spirit. All right, this resurrection life is much better than my soul or my spirit when I'll spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. 
Right? That's, that's a true thing that Scripture talks about. We will, all for sure, if we are in the Spirit, when we leave this earth, we will pass into His presence for all eternity. However, that's not our final resting place. Do you know what our final resting place is? Right? A new earth with physical glorified bodies. I remember when I was little, I think about heaven and how unappealing it was because I was just going to be a spirit like floating around in some cloud playing a harp. Because that's how it's portrayed in the cartoons, is it not? I hate music and I can't play it. I love listening to it and I, just, I can't play it. So like, why would I want to sit on a cloud and just play a harp forever? That sounds awful. <laughs> but we have, if we had a richer view of what eternity is, I think maybe we would look forward to heaven more. Right, our final resting place is not just to be a spirit floating around in heaven with, you know, pearly white gates and whatever. All right, we're all going to suffer physical death here on this earth. But someday our bodies will be raised in resurrection life, just as Christ was. Right, when Jesus was raised from the dead, how was he raised? Was he a spirit or just a soul? Or was he a body? He was a body. Right? Luke 24, 39. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He shows up to his disciples and he says this. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus, so the disciples were kind of looking like, is this like Jesus' spirit? Or like his soul that we're seeing? What, what's going on here? And Jesus says, no, like, look at me. I have hands. I have feet. A soul doesn't have those things. I'm here. Like, this is my body. I'm Jesus. This is, this is it. Right? Jesus was raised a body. A physical, glorified body. And we all who share in Christ's resurrection through the power of his Holy Spirit will also be raised a glorified, physical body. And by the way, God is going to redeem this earth. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So we're not going to float around just in whatever air forever. We're going to be on a physical earth in physical glorified bodies. I don't know about you, but that's a lot more appealing than floating around in a cloud playing a harp for all eternity. Right? We, this is Paul's point in this passage. He said the, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was resurrected from the grave in his glorified body. And so what he's saying is that by the same logic, if that spirit raised Jesus from the dead and now indwells us who are in Christ, will he not raise us in the same way? And that's his point, is that that's exactly what's going to happen. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I mean, we could just stop right there. You could just think about that now. Think about that the rest of your Sunday when you're taking a nap, as you're falling asleep this afternoon. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now dwells in me. And just think about what that means. And because of that, he will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. Right, and so if we are in the spirit, we have that promise of physical resurrection life. We will be glorified. Paul's going to say that later in Romans 8. He'll say that we will be glorified and that we will share in Christ's glory. And again, 
there's always a flip side to this. For those of us who are not in the spirit but are in the flesh, the implication is this. That we have mortal bodies, but we have nothing to give life to us. Right? There will be no glorification. There will be no physical, resurrected, glorified body on this new earth. Right? There is no promise of that for those who are in the flesh. Because the spirit of life does not reside in them. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. All right, we'll stop right there. What that verse means is this, that those of you who are in the spirit are no longer obligated to obey your sinful flesh. So Paul is clearly addressing uh, Christian believers here. We know that because he says brothers and sisters, or brothers there. So he's talking to people who are within the brotherhood of the faith. He's talking to fellow believers. And so what he says to them is that you are no longer a debtor to the flesh. All right, think of what it is to be a debtor. When you're a debtor, not that I need to explain this. I mean, we, most of us probably know what it is to be a debtor, unfortunately. Probably grieving that fact today. Um, But think about it. To be a debtor is to live in debt to someone. It's to owe somebody something. And so what he means is that we are no longer in debt to our flesh. We no longer owe our sinful flesh anything. All right, Paul says back in Romans 6 that at one time we were enslaved to our flesh. We were indebted to it. We were obligated to do whatever it told us to do. Right, he almost gives the picture in Romans 6 that sin was our slave master. Right, slave master, they tell you what to do, and what do you do? You do it. Right, and he tells us that prior to being in the Spirit, this was the condition of us all. Sin was our slave master. We were a debtor to it, and we did whatever it told us to do. Right, but he says, the good news now is that we, being in the Spirit, are no longer debtors to the flesh. We no longer owe our slave master anything, which Paul says in Romans 6. Romans 6, he talks a lot about this. He says that we have been crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. So in other words, our body of sin, which once was our slave master and held all authority and power over us, now, because we have been crucified with Christ, our body of sin has been brought to nothing. It therefore has no power and no authority to make us do whatever it wants, right? The New Testament consistently pictures this. Right? We are no longer enslaved to the power of sin for us who are in the Spirit. Right? We have, we have died with Christ, raised to new life. Let's think about this. We are no longer obligated to do whatever our sinful flesh tells us to do. And if you're in, in Christ in here, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, but I don't feel like that most of the time. Like, it still feels like my sinful flesh has power and authority over me. Right? And I'm right there with you because I've been there too. And I know what that's like. And so we must recognize that our sinful flesh has now no power over us. It still has a lot of influence on us. We're still prone to temptation and to sin. 
And so we will at times. We're not going to be perfect in holiness. We never will until we reach eternity. But we must realize that the Spirit has now been given to us to allow us and empower us to combat sin in our daily lives. And so for those of us who are in the Spirit, we owe nothing to our flesh. The Spirit gives us the power and the ability to say no or to say yes and to overcome sin, which is going to be the point of the next verse. And so we'll spend a bulk of the time remaining here. Verse 13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And what he says is this, Those of you who are in the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. In this verse, Paul is giving us a warning, and it's a strong warning. All right, look at the first part of it. He says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. All right, he's not talking about physical death. We know that because we talked about that earlier. He's talking about eternal separation from God. He's talking about what Jesus would call the second death. He's talking about eternal damnation, right? Being separated from God for all eternity because of our sin, because we have violated God's perfect holiness. And so he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I mean, Paul, he's not playing games here. I mean, he clearly states that if you live according to the flesh, you will suffer the eternal wrath of God. Now remember, in this passage, Paul is distinguishing between the two types of people. Those who are in the spirit and those who are in the flesh. And what he says in this verse is that those people who are in the f- live in the flesh and according to the flesh will die. Their end is death, the second death, the kind that matters the most. Right? And so Paul gives us a warning here, and that's his warning, that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But he closes it with this. He says, but, right, first of all, that should be good news to us there. He says, if you do this, you will die, but. So in other words, he's saying there's a way out. There's an alternative route besides to die. And so what is that? He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right, so basically he says, you can either live according to the flesh and die, or by the power of the Spirit you can put to death the deeds of the flesh and you will live. Again, that's sharing in the resurrection life of Christ and also in spiritual life here and now. We either put sin to death or sin kills us. And Paul uses violent terms to tell us how we are to treat sin. It's not to be played with. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be merely contained or kind of kept at bay. We don't just try to manage sin. He says we kill it. We put it to death. Right? You might be reading the translation. I read one translation when I was preparing for this, and it said, if you turn from sin, you will live. And I was like, 
that's not a great translation because I don't think that gets Paul's point across as strongly. His point is not merely that we just kind of like, ooh, sins that way. Well, oh, I'll just kind of like turn around, maybe think about going away from it. His point is that, no, we, we kill it. It's violent. We put it to death. Right? Sometimes I think we're too okay with sin. Like, like sometimes we're, as believers, we're aware of sin in our lives, but we just kind of either rationalize it or we're like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Or we just kind of go with the excuse like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm going to sin too, but I'm, you know, I'm saved by grace. Right? And that's not the right attitude to have. Now, do we realize how serious sin is? Do we realize how violently opposed to God sin is? And do we realize how violently opposed to us who are in Christ sin is? There's a Puritan man. You might have learned about the Puritans in history class. They're actually pretty cool people. Don't believe what the history books tell you. Uh, but there's a Puritan named John Owen. And he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. It's a whole book about this one verse, Romans 8, 13. And the whole book is about doing just this. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's about killing sin. And so the whole book is fantastic. But out, one particular line stands out. He says this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Right? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. His point is that there's no middle ground with sin. Right? There's no truce. It's either with sin, it's either kill or be killed. Right? And he makes another point in the book that sin is it's always trying to kill us. Every small sin. So his point, every look that is kind of lustful is trying to reach adultery. Every angry thought is trying to become murder. Uh, sin is trying to kill us. It's not like Satan's back to try to trip us up, you know, gotcha. Like, and he's trying to kill us. Peter says in Peter, in one of the books of Peter, first or second, that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Right? This is what sin is. And I think if we realized what sin was trying to do to us, we would take it a little bit more seriously. I remember earlier this spring, I went to my parents' house, and I was running. Uh, so if you know where they live, they live in the country. And so I was, I was looking forward to a nice run in the country, you know, no people around. And so going down this country road, everything's going great, just having a great run. And there's a house off to my right. As I'm passing it, I see an SUV parked in the driveway with the hatch open on the back. I see a dog in the back. As I'm running, I look over. I see it. It catches sight of me. It doesn't just start barking. I mean, it just jumps out of this SUV, just sprints after me, barking like mad. I mean, I like stumble off the road, and I start to kind of keep jogging. I'm watching it. I mean, this dog was not happy that I was running in front of its house. I was prepared for a fight. And, I mean, this thing, I mean, it's chasing me, just foaming at the mouth, barking violently. Also, it looked like it was at least part pit bull, so I was kind of concerned. So it's chasing me, and it's, I'm kind of jogging like this, kind of looking behind it so I can keep an eye on it. And it'll, like, kind of lunge at me, then back off and lunge at me and back off. And in my mind, I had this thought that if that dog lays one tooth on me, right, it's... It's kill or be killed now. And I was strategizing what I was going to do to that dog. Like, I don't, 
if that dog so much tries to do anything to me, like, I, I will put that dog to death. Right, because that dog meant violence to me. How foolish would it have been if I would have just been like, sit, stay, you know. Walk up, try to pet it, right? No, but sometimes that's what we try to do with our sin. Right? Sin is violently opposed to us. The difference between sin and that dog is that sin isn't just threatening us. It's actually latching on to us. And we just kind of, you know, oh, good dog. You know, just stop barking and we'll be good. You can stay latched onto my leg. That's okay. All right, I was, I was ready to put that dog to death if it came down to it. It would have been kill or be killed. All right, and so it is with sin. It's, with sin, it's either kill or be killed. Now, here's the thing. I know some of you might be thinking this, that... The, I'll put it this way. There are a couple of different ways to read this verse. And one of the ways to read this verse is this. that So I'm a Christian now. I'm saved by grace. I have the Spirit in me. And so now Paul gives me the responsibility to put sin to death. And that if I don't do that well enough, then I'm going to lose my salvation and I'm going to die. Right? And I don't think that's the right way to read this verse because I don't think that's what Paul means. I don't think he's saying that you can lose your salvation. And I don't think he's talking about work salvation here. Rather, what I think he's talking about is this, is that putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit is evidence that we are saved and evidence that we are in the Spirit. All right, so let me try to explain this more. He's not, he's not saying that Christians will not struggle with holiness. He's not saying that Christians will not struggle with sin at all and that will never sin. Rather, what he's saying is that the fact that we're struggling against sin, the fact that we we hate it and we're trying to kill it by the power of the Spirit, is evidence that we are saved, that we are Christians. Okay, does that make sense? Do you kind of get the distinction I'm trying to make there? So, if you're in here and you're a Christian and you're worrying like, oh man, have I been doing this well enough? Like, am I still a Christian? That's probably a good sign that you are saved because you're actually concerned about it. The concern comes in is when there's absolutely no struggle against sin. There's no concern about whether or not I'm saved. There's no concern about putting sin to death. Now, I've had other Christians come up to me before and they've been concerned. Like, am I, am I really saved? Like, sometimes I try to read my Bible, and it, I don't really feel anything. Or I stand in church, and I sing, and I don't feel anything. Or I'm struggling with the sin right now, and I want to get rid of it, but I can't. So, like, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? I just want to look at the people, and I want to tell them, like, yes. Because the fact that you're concerned about this and the fact that you're struggling with this is a sign that you are alive. Right? Dead people aren't concerned about this. I heard this analogy one time uh, to illustrate this. Uh, This guy was saying that he was imagining a war scene on a beach. So he said, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, something like that opening scene where they're on the beach. And it's just insane. It's crazy. It's violent. Uh, But he said, if you picture that scene, he said, at that scene, there are two types of soldiers. He said, one is tense. He's agitated. He's, a, he's aware of what's going on around him. All right, bullets fly by his head and he flinches. Bombs go off and he flinches. 
That's one type of soldier. He said the other type of soldier is peaceful. Right, he's just sitting there, not too concerned about what's going on. Right, he's at peace. Doesn't flinch when bullets go by. He doesn't flinch when bombs go off. He's just at peace. And he said, do you know what the difference between the two soldiers are? The first one that's scared and agitated is alive. The second one is dead. And so his point is that it's similar with us who are in the spirit and in the flesh. If we're in the spirit, we have not been saved from the fight against sin. All right? God has not so just removed us from this earth and just removed us from our sinful flesh so that now we have no struggle with sinful temptation and with sin. All right? He, we have been saved to the fight. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to allow us to fight. Right? But for those of us who are in the flesh, we're that soldier that's dead. Right? We don't notice the bombs going off. We don't flinch when bullets go by. We're not even aware there's a battle going on. And so if you're in here and you're a Christian, but you're struggling with sin right now, and you're like, man, I, just, I don't know. Am I saved? Am I not? Like, I'm just, I'm in a tough place right now. I want to encourage you, and I think Paul wants to encourage you here, that you are, right? You have the Spirit in you. And that's one of the reasons I wanted, we wanted to preach on this today, right? It's to give us who are in the Spirit greater assurance that we're in the Spirit. We need to remind of that, reminded of that all the time because we forget, and we always question our faith. Am I actually saved? Am I in the Spirit? Right? And Scripture wants to reaffirm us that, yes, we are. Right? There will be times when we backslide. There will be times when we struggle. There will be times when we even sin. Maybe even in an egregious way. But in that time, we know the grace of God covers us. We know that the Spirit is in us. And we seek to put that sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Because that's what Paul commands us to do. We put to death the deeds of the Spirit, or of the flesh, by the power of the Spirit. We can't do it by ourselves. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to combat sin and kill it. Only the Spirit can do that. Right? Something spiritual has to be battled with something else spiritual, namely the Holy Spirit. And so for those of us who are in the Spirit, we have this responsibility now to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, you truly are, then this will happen in your life. The Holy Spirit will do the work in you. And if you're not in the flesh, then you're that dead soldier. Or if you're in the flesh, you're that dead soldier. All right, so let me try to ask some questions to try to make this more clear. Do you hate sin? When you sin, are you just kind of like, that's cool, whatever, or do you hate it? When you sin, are you violently opposed to it? Do you hate it? Or are you just kind of okay with it? Do you secretly really, really love sin, but you kind of act like you don't just because you call yourself a Christian or because you go to church? Or has the Spirit been given to you so that you now have in you a hatred for sin? That's not to say that you won't ever have a draw towards sin. You won't sometimes have a desire for it or like it. 
But deep down, when it comes down to it, do you hate it and do you desire to be free from sin? If you have no desire to be free from sin, then Scripture says you're in the flesh. Right? Do you legitimately love the Lord or do you legitimately love sin and say you love the Lord? Right? Because they are diametrically opposed. You can't love God and love sin. It's one or the other. Because they are violently opposed to each other. And again, if we have the Spirit, we will. Right? God says in the Old Testament, actually in Ezekiel 36, I will put my Spirit within you and I will cause you to obey my statutes. I will cause you. If we have the Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit will work in us. He will so transform our hearts and our minds and our lives that we will begin to hate sin and begin to love God more. My point is that if we're not seeing any of that transformation and any of that progress, then that's evidence that we're not in the Spirit. And again, it's not perfection, but there's progress. We should be able to look back over the years in our lives since we've been believers, and we should be able to see the ways that the Spirit has transformed us. We should be able to see the Spirit giving us victory over sin. We should see the Spirit giving us a greater love for God and greater in holiness. If we see no progress, that's evidence that we don't have the Spirit and that the change has actually not been wrought in our hearts. So, looking to close here shortly. All right, we've differentiated between the two groups of people, those in the flesh and those in the spirit. And we know that these are the only two groups of people. There's one or the other. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You either have the spirit of Christ or you don't. If you have the spirit of Christ, you belong to him. He indwells you. You have the promise of life here on this earth. You have the promise of resurrection life. You have the power to combat sin. And one day you will be glorified in God's presence just as Christ is. Those are the glorious truths of us who are in the Spirit. And so, if you're in here today and you are in the Spirit, that's you. I want to give you a greater assurance of that now let this help us walk in the Spirit, right, daily, hourly, every minute, right, seeking to walk by the Spirit that we know from Galatians 5, Galatians 5, we might bear the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the fruit of the flesh. And then we know that the people in the flesh, right, we know that they don't belong to Christ, they don't have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them. We know that their body is dead, but they, yet they have no power of life within them. They have no promise of life here on this earth. They have no promise of resurrection life. They have no righteousness right now, and they need the righteousness of Christ applied to them. We know that their bodies are dead, and that there's no, again, there's no promise of resurrection life. We know that they're still indebted to the flesh, and we know that they live according to the flesh and have no power to combat sin in their daily lives. These are the two sides. These are the two types of people. Those in the flesh and those in the spirit. 
And so which group are you in? Are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? We can create all the labels we want, but when it comes down to it, there are only two types of people in this world, those in the flesh or those in the spirit. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come forward now. So which group are you in? I know there were a lot of points in today's message. We walked through five verses, and there was a ton in that passage. You might even want to go home and reread that to yourself. All right, but take this one point, or ask yourself this one question from today. Which group am I in? Am I in the spirit, or am I in the flesh? And if you don't know, first of all, that's okay, but I would encourage you to go home, read this passage over and over. Right, crying out to God, God, help me to know, am I in your spirit or am I in the flesh? Now, we don't want to create doubt in people who are in the spirit. But, again, one of my fears is that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They've grown up in church. They've been baptized. They help out. They might even do whatever in church. They're, they're good people. But they're not in the spirit. The Holy Spirit has not applied the work of salvation to them. The Holy Spirit has not transformed them. Right, if you have the Spirit, you'll be different from when you were in the flesh. Right, the two opposite ends of the spectrum. That, again, that doesn't mean you'll sometimes backslide or exhibit fruits of the flesh. You will. But there should be progress and you should be able to see transformation in your life that can only come by the power of the spirit so again which group are you in are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit and I'll close with one verse 2 Corinthians 4 6 says this For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And his point in this verse is this. He says a couple verses earlier that all, all of us who are in the flesh, who have rejected the gospel, have been so blinded by Satan that we cannot see the glory of God in the gospel. And so what we need, he says in verse 6, is that we need God to say, let light shine out of darkness into our hearts to allow us to see the glory of God. Right? So just as God at the beginning said there was darkness all over the earth, he said, let there be light. Paul says, that's what we need as unbelievers. Right? We need God to say, let there be light in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the gospel. And so I'm saying this is today, right now, is that's my prayer for you who are still in the flesh listening to this right now. That you, that God will just shine the light into your heart that maybe for the first time you would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of the gospel. Right? You may have walked in here in the flesh, but if you do that, you will walk out of here in the spirit. Right? And so if God's doing that work in you right now, he's shining a light 
and allowing you to see his glory right now, you've been convicted that I am not in the spirit, I'm in the flesh, then turn to Christ in faith. Right? Because like you said earlier, when we do that, the Holy Spirit will attribute the righteousness of Christ to us. We will be in the spirit. The Holy Spirit will come, make us alive, indwell us now and forever. He will seal us and we will belong to Christ for eternity. Then you can read this passage in Romans saying, knowing that I'm in the spirit. So would you stand with me and let's pray and then we'll sing before we go. Father in heaven, our salvation through the work of your son we thank you for sending your spirit to actually apply salvation to us and father i pray right now for us who are in the spirit god for us who are in the spirit give us a greater assurance that we are saved that we are yours god give us a greater assurance that we belong to you give us a greater assurance that we have resurrection life waiting for us give us a greater assurance that you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to put to death our sin. And so, Father, for those of us who are in the Spirit, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to bear the fruit of the Spirit always. And may your Holy Spirit so transform us and so conform us to the image of your Son, God, that we have an even greater assurance that we are yours. Father, I pray right now for those people in here who are in the spirit, who are in the flesh. God, may you right now shine light into the darkness of their hearts. Allow them to see your glory. God, allow them to turn to Christ in faith. God, we pray that they would be saved today. Father, we thank you for giving us your spirit. And Holy Spirit, may you do your work now. giving us believers greater assurance and convicting those of us who are in the flesh that we need you. So Father, help us now in this time. We thank you for this day and we pray these things in Christ's name.